Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Real Perspectives podcast. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and share it with your colleagues and friends because it has some nugget of information that may pertain to your daily work. There are more episodes in our library, too, so if you like them or have any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Vladimir Bosanets. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Laura Tinetti, the Executive Vice President of JLL and Senior Lead of the Retail Team in San Francisco. With over two decades of experience in the retail industry, Laura has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in all aspects of site selection, strategic planning, and store development for some of the nation's leading retailers. Her impressive track record of successfully managing strategic store rollout programs and overseeing core assets for institutional landlords in San Francisco's Financial District, Union Square, and other premium neighborhoods has resulted in high-volume, profitable retail locations for her clients. We are excited to dive deeper into Laura's insights and experiences in the industry and learn more about her strategies for achieving success in the dynamic world of retail. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Laura, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, Where do we find you? Where are you today? I am in San Francisco today, um, enjoying this lovely rainy weather that we're having. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Um, and Laura, by way of uh, introduction, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, sort of how you got into the industry and sort of, you know, the, the road that led you to, uh, to this position at JLL? Sure. I'd love to. Yeah. So I started, um, I started actually my career uh, with a Staubach company about 18 years ago. Um, and I had, I had wanted to get into real estate for a while, but I wasn't sure what sector specifically industrial office or retail. And eventually I ended up with retail. It just seemed fascinating. So many different business concepts, um, being able to, you know, execute on deals that were tangible in the market and changing and impacting communities in a real way. Um, and at the end of the day, retail is just fun and <laughs> we're all consumers and we're all shoppers. It was fun to talk about it with family and friends, what was going on. So that's how I, I started out on the, uh, with Staubach and, um, I was on the tenant rep side for 12 years. So the tenant rep side, so national retailers, regional retailers looking at expanding in Northern California, helping them with their strategy and execution of those plans. Um, and then JLL has been a bright spot in the career. I was recruited over to JLL about six and a half years ago to start our okay. retail team here in the city. And um, with that function, our, our office team is is the top office team in San Francisco. And we needed to answer the um, the problem in the market, which was that, that we didn't have a retail presence. So we had all these office buildings that all have retail on the ground floor, and we didn't have a team on the ground to help uh, with those amenities for those buildings. So I'm, I'm very uh, proud to say that we've now grown that agency listing in portfolio in San Francisco to over 60 listings here in, in the city. And we have a team of, of eight brokers here as well. So it's been, it's been a fun ride and, um, and, and, and retail is, is, is alive despite what some of the headlines might say. 
Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting about that? So your your group is only focused on San Francisco as a as a city, or or will you dip down into Silicon Valley and sort of other parts of the region also? Yeah. To be really clear, retail we dip down. We cover Northern California as a team. Um, everywhere and specifically on the, we have different, um, agents and different that specialize in different markets, but, um, on the tenant side of everything, we cover from Bakersfield to the Oregon border for our tenants. Um, and, um, when I was talking about 60 listings, that is specifically, um, to San Francisco on the agency, the listing side in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Right. Got so, it. But we Got do, we do stretch down to Silicon Valley, East Bay and North Bay. Great. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so let's jump into some of the conversations about the industry overall. So I think we've all heard and sort of seen the headlines about, you know, what's happened during COVID. Um, we know the retail in many ways um, has recovered. Some parts of it have actually done really, really well. Um, you know, here we are talking at, you know, end of, you know, Q1 of 2023, almost Q2. What's the state of the market? Great question, Vlad. I'm glad I'm glad you asked that. Um, there are a number of, of interesting things going on on a macro level um, in retail right now. Suburban, there's a tale of two stories. Suburban retail remains very strong um, with competitive um, uh, with a competitive landscape. We are one of the things that's interesting in in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're the only sub MSA in the entire US that is under retailed per capita which that what what that means is oh, okay. yeah it's it's a pretty interesting which which translates to um you know pricing and and all of these things and there's it's a it's pretty dynamic when you understand this most of America the rest of America is over retailed and so that's why you hear these stories of people giving boxes back or you know see malls that need to be repositioned but in the bay area we are a very healthy retail market and part of that is is due to our geographical constraints with the bay and the mountain ranges and just the development costs and pricing of real estate um, and so we tend to be a very competitive market. So in our suburban landscape, there, if there's a space available, there's, there's usually a few people interested in those spaces. And our pricing is, um, is 30% higher than Southern California, even though our population is, is just a third of Southern California. And what that translates to in terms of retail sales, though, are some of the strongest retail sales in all of um, the nation come out of Northern California. Um, so it's just created a really dynamic market in our suburban environment. And that, that story contins, continues to be really positive at the time. Um, if we, if we scan over to San Francisco specifically, um, there's a different story there. And that, that's a story of urban recovery, um, that we are talking about on a national level are, are, you know, the New York's, the Chicago's, um, Miami's a bright spot within that, and we can talk about that. <laughs> um, but uh, downtown LA, these these core urban markets really have been hit um, by COVID due to the impact on um, office dynamic and just the shift of of folks moving out of the city, maybe into the suburbs as they contemplate what their work from home life will look like. And so we are in the process of recovery right now. It, San Francisco being one of the slower recoveries that we've seen, there's some bright spots and we can talk about that, but, um, but there's, yep. you know, there's been some challenges there. It's, it's, you know, I don't want to, um, you know, it, it just complete transparency. There's been some challenges. On the, on the suburban side of the market, as you kind of canvas, you know, the, you know, region, do you, 
um, you know, across the Bay Area, do you see certain parts of the suburban market, um, you know, distinctly different than other parts of the suburban market? So, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, downtown San Jose versus, let's say, you know, suburban San Jose or, you know, Danville or, you know, places like 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 that. Um, would would you be able to, you know, um, explain what uh, what the difference is? Yes. So, um, great question. There, there is a nuance of, uh, and difference between these markets. So when you get into the one-on-one peninsula corridor, that is very tight. Um, again, kind of going back to the point earlier, it's geographic, geographical constraints. There's limited retail. There's only so much space that you can develop. So we're seeing a lot of, um, real estate there repurposed. A great example of that is, um, what was done at, in Mountain View at um, San Antonio Center, which was just, you know, this is going years back now, probably 10 years ago now, but um, that was just a traditional um, suburban power center and was purchased and then redeveloped into a mixed-use project. So densifying, adding office, adding residential, keeping retail at the bottom. That's really the highest and best use for some of those dense markets that you see. There's you know, there's a second phase of that coming online soon. When you get down into um, San Jose, even though downtown, downtown San Jose, you mentioned, is interesting because down, downtowns typically serve as kind of the social hub and core, but Silicon Valley is different. Um, the, yeah. the, you know, the retail and the hub of the community really is centered around both Santana Row and Westfield. Um, right along there at Stevens Creek, that is, you know, where you have the highest social capita and all of the, you know, the just the, that that is where things are happening. Downtown San Jose is is um, is still is struggling to kind of identify themselves and who they are going to be in terms of a retail landscape. It really is amenity at the base of an office building. Um, but not necessarily like dynamic street retail that you see in other parts. And then when you head up to the um, East Bay Corridor, uh, the hub of the East Bay Corridor from just a community standpoint and regional standpoint is Walnut Creek. And you have subsets within um, those areas, whether it's the 880 Corridor, and you have some exciting things going on in um, Union City and San Leandro. And, um, and then when you go over the mountain range there into Contra Costa, very a lot of exciting growth happening in the Tri Valley area as well between Dublin, Pleasanton, and and Livermore as the growth from the Bay Area expands that way. So retail follows the rooftops. Um, it's probably just intuitive that we all understand that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and that was going to be my follow up question. Um, you know, in in the Bay Area, sort of given that the work flexibility or inflexibility to go back to work <laughs> into the office. Has you know uh, you know led people to work work from home essentially in almost every every industry, you know has that and I think maybe this is an obvious question to you, but has that been one of the main drivers of why suburban retail has done so well across the region? Absolutely, yeah. The, um, people were spending more time in their in their neighborhood community than they ever had before. Uh, because they were spending more time at home. So instead of just being, you know, the, the place that they were at on the weekends or when they got home after work for that once or twice a night or tw- twice a week dinner out, they they were there, um, you know, throughout the day and kind of learning what the new flexible workday looked like. And so retail definitely benefited from that. 
Yeah. Are there any um, kind of like, you know, big lessons learned? And we'll we'll go into some of the sort of overall lessons learned, you know, in terms of like, you know, your, your experience. But just from a retailer point of view, maybe from a landlord point, point of view, uh, you know, things that were really interesting during that time that have continued now into, you know, 2023. Yeah, I think... Um one of the things that we learned that um, during that time period when we were all, um, you know, during the heart of COVID that I think is here to stay in retail, specifically in Northern California, is the importance of outdoor space. Um, you know, aside from this, aside from the, the weather that we're having this winter specifically, we t- tend to be a pretty mild temperate uh, climate. And so we, we really are geared to spending a lot of time outside and people uh, do want to spend their time outside. And so reimagining retail space, whether it's opening up roofs or, um, you know, quote unquote, demalling, uh, making open air centers or adding additional patio space or really um, having landlords focus on how their community space is so important um, for, for, you know, just act like for families and engagement and, um, that's, that's here to stay. We don't see that going away. So landlords who've invested extra capital in those common areas, um, we've seen a bump on their, um, just the desirability of, of their project. And I, I just don't see that going away even as we come out of this, uh, this, this, the last couple of years. Um, Laura, as a quick follow up on kind of a you know macro picture, what's happening across across the country? You know, how is inflation and the changes, uh, you know, in the interest rate environment um, changing changing retail? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's also a loaded question. Um, retailers right now, we have not seen um, a huge impact just yet. Store counts are still up, and um, Folks are still expanding. However, we're we're a year into this. Um, the Feds started increasing rates um, in March of last year, and typically speaking, it usually runs on average for 24 months until they peak. So that would mean March of of 2024, um, and then they kind of stand still for nine months. And so, you know, how high they're going to go remains to be seen. But what happens is that in that time period, the cost of capital. Um, to access capital, it, it stifens the ability for it just kind of trickles down to everything, whether it's construction, which we're, as I mentioned before, we are, you know, already a geographically constrained environment here in the Bay Area. So it kind of it, it delays construction. So then it creates a backlog when things get do get turned on for retailers to get into spaces. And then it's really it's, it'll be individual um, tenants as far as who's going to be able to take advantage of those markets. Tenants who have zero to no debt are going to be in a, in a really healthy position to take a, advantage of those market dynamics. Um, whereas um, you're going to see, and we already are seeing, deals kind of slow down because of cost to capital and because of the reluctant reluctancy around how long this is going to last or, 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 or deep we're going to go into this. Um, ones that are, are reliant on, um, on access to that capital, things are just going to slow down and there might even be some folks that will pull back in the market. So it's a very interesting time for sure. Um, it, it, and, but we've gone through it before and, um, yeah, we should, we should see, we should be on the other side and see what, what <laughs> we can do another interview come, 
come uh, uh, March of 2024. Switching gears towards San Francisco now, a slightly different story that when, than what's happened um, across the suburban market, right? Um, a lot of it more dependent on the foot traffic that used to be there during the sort of office hours, correct? Um, tell us a little bit about sort of what's, what's, what's happening in there. There may be some of the kind of micro markets within the city that are, you know, doing okay, not okay. And, you know, how would you, how would you characterize that? Great question and really insightful because it's, it's similar to the, um, the, the question before about the suburban markets in San Francisco itself, our neighborhood retail has actually done, has done very well because the, the folks that were living in San Francisco and working from home, similarly to our suburban counterparts, were enjoying the retail in the neighborhood. So highlights and, you know, Chestnut Street um, over in the Marina or Fillmore, Upper Fillmore area or Hayes Valley um, or some parts of, uh, of the Mission District, you know, pretty healthy and very active and vibrant even during this time. The, the, the areas of challenge um, that were impacted, um, and, and maybe this seems intuitive to, to folks here as well, but was where there were office workers and tourists. So the Financial District and Union Square um, really has has struggled and has been a slower recovery um, just because there wasn't the, the same amount of uh, bodies on the street as there were pre-COVID. Yeah, and, and that continues to this day, obviously, correct? It continues to this day, but it is um, we are definitely on the recovery side. I think the, the dip was um, probably the lowest was December of 2021. So we have been on an incline and incre- we've definitely been in recovery mode for the last, um, let's call it, you know, 15 months or so. So there's a lot of really positive news and green shoots and um, that are coming through those to those areas. But it is still not um, we are still not fully recovered. That's correct. Yeah, the the city has had this uh, constant battle with what's called formula retail, which is basically national kind of retailers that want to come into the city. Has has that helped them, you know, loosen some of those policies and, you know, rethink, um, y- you know, whether they want to, you know, prohibit the, you know, proliferation of, of you know, big national names. Yeah, I I. For specific, I want to be really succinct in this um, answer. Specific to formula retail, it has not. The the climate in the city has shifted, yes, to be more pro-business. I mean, we do have a stigma across the country when it comes to retail, how, how tough it is to actually do business in San Francisco. Um, formula retail being kind of the pinnacle of, of what most folks talk about and want to understand yeah. when they look at, you know, putting locating their stores in San Francisco. Unfortunately, there hasn't been there's been talks of of loosening those restrictions. There hasn't been anything actually implemented um, to help. But where the city has stepped up to help has been, um, you know, we've seen with the parklets and what they did for restaurant operators there. Uh, they have tried to um, really expedite permitting process for for folks that were in building permit process or over the counter permits. They've they've tried to tried to step up there. So there has been some effort in those regards. Um, they they definitely shined this last December and in, in terms of what they did in Union Square, um, just as far as like safety for the community and and, and that sort of thing. That's that's a that's a different topic though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, as kind of an extension of that, you know, question um, the, the the food and beverage market. Um, 
uh, which which is an area in which you have focused also. Tell us about that and sort of how how that's done and kind of how you um, see that market you know evolving today. Food and beverage um, was obviously there, it's a this is again a tale of two stories. There, it was hit hard initially, and then we saw some of our most innovative uh, food and beverage operators in San Francisco pivot towards delivery or takeout versions or adding outdoor dining. Um, it's, you know, some of them had access and were able to get, um, the PPP funds. Uh, and the ones that have, um, there's a really, there's a bright spot here. Some of, some of the folks that are the best and the brightest in this industry posted, um, record years in 2022. So, um, there was a lot of headlines about the, the, the food and beverage industry shuttering. And that did happen because there, again, there just wasn't the same amount of bodies on the street. However, the operators that were, um, learned how to pivot or, um, adjusted for the model or, or just were, um, great experiences and great operators in general. Um, they have really, they have really shined during this time period. Yeah, interesting. So, so if if I understood this correctly, you're you're saying that some of the stories around you know restaurants or other establishments not working out was primarily based on the way they operated rather than sort of the market. The creative ones have done relatively well, as evidenced sort of by their success in 2022 and you know beyond, right? Well, yes, that's one point of it, but I want to be really clear. Also, the other function is real estate for sure. So dynamic real estate locations also benefit. So it's a combination of the real estate location and the operator. Some of those operators um, were great operators, but they were just the real estate was completely too dependent on destination. It might not have been um, prime real estate. So um, it's a function of those two. It's it's definitely a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. How have landlords behaved during this time? Um, I imagine, you know, they were up and down as well, wondering what is going to happen to their to their properties. But how how has that relationship played out over the last couple of years? You know, I feel very fortunate. I work with um, wonderful clients and most of institutional clients. And um, most of the folks that I work with on the landlord side have been really amenable to understanding, especially when it comes to some of these mom and pop tenants, um, just being creative and and keeping the doors open and and giving relief where they could or restructuring leases. I mean, the first year of COVID, I think, um, I was, I was busier than ever, you know, phone call to phone call, but not actually doing, um, new deals, just helping people understand, you know, how we talk in, in the retail world, health occupancy ratio, percentage rent and getting creative on restructuring and, you know, maybe extending terms so the landlord is made up on the backside when recovery. It's just, um, but overall it was really encouraging to see how people in these times just pull together and get, um, really resourceful with the spirit of, of trying to work together. That, landlords have answered the market with coming up, you know, coming up with creative solutions um, to keep the lights on and help to keep um, some of these guys in business. Um, At the end of the day, there's only so much they can do, obviously, because everything, you know, flows upstream and there's, there's lending to report to and and all of that sort of stuff. But, but the spirit in general has been to um, try to work through creative solutions during this time period. Yeah. 
there have been um, um, obviously, like you said, success stories. You know, from your observation and just anecdotally, you know, what do you think worked? What do you think didn't work um, during that time? And you know, what, what were some kind of anecdotes of you know creativity that that you know impressed you? I think um, if I would get into the weeds of what did work um, is is what I just alluded to a little bit ago was um, the percentage rent scenarios um, that worked from the standpoint of a retailer being able to keep their doors open for because um, how that works is it, it's basically a reset of sales and so then it goes back to um, you know the the pass throughs it's it just becomes an operational expense for the retailer so. Those things were really encouraging to see, um, and uh, but unfortunately, sometimes what didn't work is when is as I mentioned when there was lending or certain uh, underwriting parameters that need to be met. Um, those those were the ones that were challenging to make. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, I guess, um, was also construction costs. That that has been another challenge during this time period. Just construction costs have gone up so much, and so. Um, you know, landlords stepped up and got creative, um, for new deals on, on maybe contributing more capital to the underlying build out costs than they did pre COVID. Um, however, the, the, the flux in the construction costs and pricing has made it really unpredict and it's changed so quickly. So you might price something out today, but then by the time, and so you all think, so everybody thinks they understand what the construction of the space is going to be. And then six months later, when you actually get through your building permits and all the processes that you need and design and plans and all that, and you're about to um, start construction, the prices have increased um, dramatically by that point. And so then you're talking about a different price structure for construction. So that's been another challenge that was maybe um, hard to, it's defi- it was definitely hard to predict and, and hard to kind of understand because it's pretty dynamic that has made things challenging in this environment. Yeah. And um, what about on the on the concept side and and just in terms of, you know, what um, some of the, you know, tenants were doing? What are some sort of stories of success there that that you thought were very interesting? It was you really saw a spirit of ingenuity, uh, which is really the heart and soul of San Francisco with some of these food and beverage operators that pivoted towards pickup windows. Maybe they were in one that comes to mind is in my neighborhood, which is in Russian Hill. And, um, Abrezo was, they were, they were a fine dining Spanish operator dine in and they had opened for two months, um, before COVID happened and, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and could, yeah. and, were, and was, and were not able to pivot towards outdoor dining. So what they did was they actually opened up a side kitchen, for grab and go uh, abbreviated menus like tacos and and other items like that that was so wildly popular there would be lines down the street for it so I mean that's one example but there are so many of those Vlad for our food and beverage operators in San Francisco in terms of how they pivoted either to dine in or takeout or more casual fare or delivery. Um, you know, so, so kitchen space became more important than ever. And it was just, yep. and it was really, it was really interesting to see and to watch. Yeah. During that time, there was some conversation around, you know, ghost kitchens as a concept. I don't think that really ever took off, but, um, but I'm curious if, if, if you've seen, seen the same, um, 
and and also have you noticed any kind of um, you know expansion in sort of food trucks like has has that become a concept that you think is is here to stay yeah so there's two parts to those questions on to the first um, there there was this buzz around commissary kitchens and ghost kitchens and that's kind of come and gone along with um, the finance markets so those were backed by um, you know, by VC money and trying to figure that out. And I think what what they realized is that um, in order to be in spaces in San Francisco where you could basically be like 10 minute delivery, right? Um, the the cost of those spaces um, were more expensive than they had anticipated. So the model didn't quite pencil out. Um, and so that seems like that, that whole segment has sort of... Um, you know, gone by the wayside at one point, yeah. there was over yeah. 10 plus of those looking in San Francisco proper to try to identify space. Um, but that's gone now. Uh, what's not gone is the food trucks. I think food trucks are here to stay. Food trucks are great. I mean, I have, um, you know, as a 20 plus year resident of San Francisco, I have, I just have a love for, you know, being foodie in general and seeing everybody be, you know, creative and food trucks are a great way for folks with limited capital to test concepts uh, because it, it's about a $75,000 investment um, to get up and running and you can be mobile and you can test different areas of the city. And so I don't, I don't see that going anywhere. What's interesting, what happened, it's usually a first venture into a concept that a chef might have. And then from there, if there's, um, if there's a, a following that's developed or, you know, just if they gain the success, you, you typically see it turn into, um, to a brick and mortar store. So I don't see food trucks going, going away anytime soon. It's a, it's a great startup basically for a food concept. Yeah, interesting. Um, the food delivery has been, you know, I, you know, had had a had a you know had its moment also. I would say during um, during COVID, um, but I do also feel like maybe it's here to stay. And um, you know, as we've seen, you know, companies like Uber, which didn't do food delivery prior to COVID, are now in that business too. Um, has that impacted how um, you know food and beverage? tenants, you know, consider their business plans, how they, you know, plan for, um, you know, the growth of their business? Uh, what what impact overall does, does this have for them? Um, it does impact. I think there's just access to delivery that um, food and beverage operators never really had before as that as those platforms have evolved. So it's, it's pretty easy to opt in now to um, you know, a Postmates or, a, you know, a Grubhub or an Uber Eats or there's multiple platforms, Caviar, whatever. So it, it's definitely, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a vibe. I don't see that. Go- I don't see that going away, especially in urban markets. It's, it's definitely yeah. not going away. Um, and yeah. it's added to the bottom line to a lot of these spaces by about 20%. So um, that's pretty impactful at the end of the day. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Um, so, Laura, as you look at kind of uh, into the near term, you know, to midterm, maybe 24 or 36 months, w- what are some of the things that you think are going to define, you know, both food and beverage space, but also retail in general across uh, Northern California? Yeah. So I think um, there's so two questions there. So I think the trend in food and beverage right now that it, we're not going to see go away anytime soon is that second gen restaurant space is the priority um, because of those construction costs that we talked about earlier. 
and just the cost to get in, just the, the barrier to entry for a new restaurant. So if there's a second gen restaurant space, we're going to, and it's quality, we're going to continue to see quality operators flock to those spaces over. And, and, and by asking, sec- and, and by saying second generation, is this, is this sort of a, you know, restaurant that's already existed, but someone else is now coming into the space. Is that what that means? Exactly. Yes. So a restaurant is there, they have closed their doors, they've gone away, but the infrastructure of the furniture, fixtures, and equipment all remain and it's been built out and um, there might be a new remodel in terms of design or a refresh on those items or tables and chairs that maybe need to be bought, but the infrastructure is all there. There's a major cost savings um, for restaurants for those spaces. And so those are still, I don't see that going away anytime soon. Those are still being looked at as a premium. And until those spaces are absorbed and where we are in full recovery, I don't see that our new construction spaces on mixed use or residential or other as far as new construction, um, I see those spaces being harder to um, occupy because of build-out costs that we talked about. Yeah. Um, Laura, as we um, close the conversation here, um, we talked a little bit about, you know, lessons learned over the last three, um, you know, years or so. But um, for you personally, w- what have been some things that, um, you know, really made an impact and kind of things that, you know, surprised you, I guess, both in a positive and negative way um, during during this last, you know, um, change of an era, <laughs> if you will? Yeah, um, you know, I think um, I think I mentioned it, you know, on a on a. Uh, on a professional level, I was really encouraged to see the spirit of collaboration and people working together to be creative. Um, on a personal level, I will say that <laughs> I am I am thankful that I am an optimist, um, and because it has it was definitely a dark time. And I don't realize I don't think I realized how much of a, a an optimist I was until I I just having to go through this time period and kind of always looking for where to problem solve and, and what was the good news to share and, and what was going on with, um, you know, things that, and just a way to impact people on, on a, um, positive level on a daily basis. I, I think that was the personal lesson that I learned. That was, that was the, um, you know, that was the silver lining of the last, uh, three years. Yeah. And then as, as my final question, I like to sort of, you know, always ask, you know, you've been in this industry now for, sometime um what advice would you give to your younger self or maybe you know somebody entering the market now uh in you know retail and you know things things you wish you knew or things that you would um uh want to advise somebody yeah i think the uh, thing that i think about i'm that i'm glad that i i chose retail you you really have to um you really have to love and be interested in it specifically um, because it, it is a challenging environment. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing. It, it's constantly evolving. So making sure that it's something that you're both personally interested in, as well as just not just professionally, it seems like a good path that it is, um, you know, it is a career of, of, of knowing people and relationships and fostering those relationships and problem solving. And, and, um, you know, that's, it, it just, it just, it's just one of those things that, um, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad that I chose retail based on just being personally invested and interested in it. 
Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This was uh, wonderful and um, um, enjoy enjoy the rest of your week and hopefully uh, um, you come all good uh, on the other side of this uh, you know winter storm that <laughs> everyone's expecting in Northern California. Yeah, great. It's been so so wonderful talking to you today. So thank you. I appreciate it. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.